beautiful, amazing world of seeds. There are now something like three hundred thousand species of flowering, seed-bearing plants that represent eighty percent of all plant life on our planet. So I don't care who you are or where you are. You look out of your window and you are enjoying the benefits of the success of those seed-bearing plants. So when you put that in context, we as humans. Rely on the lives of these seeds in almost every way you can think of. That's Jennifer Jewell, author and podcaster. Later in the show, we talk with her about her book, "What We Sow," on the personal, ecological, and cultural significance of seeds. But first, we explore the people of a tiny island who are thought to be the last uncontacted tribe on Earth. Our guest is historian, essayist, and author Adam Goodhart, and his book is *The Last Island: Discovery, Defiance, and the Most Elusive Tribe on Earth*. That's all coming up on today's Writer's Voice in-depth conversation with writers of all genres on the air since 2004. Thanks for joining us this hour on this station and at writersvoice.net. I'm Francesca Riannon. In November 2018, a zealous American missionary was killed while attempting to visit an island he called Satan's Last Stronghold, a small patch of land known as North Sentinel in the Andaman Islands. That's a remote archipelago in the Indian Ocean. News of the tragedy fascinated people around the world. Most were unaware that such a place still existed in our time, an island unmolested by the advances of modern technology. Twenty years before the American missionary's ill-fated visit, a young American historian and journalist named Adam Goodhart also traveled to the waters off North Sentinel. During his time in the Andaman Islands, he witnessed another isolated tribe emerge into modernity. For the first time, now Goodhart has returned to the Andamans with his new book, *The Last Island*. It tells the stories of others drawn to North Sentinel's mystery through the centuries, from imperial adventurers to an eccentric Victorian photographer to modern-day anthropologists. It narrates the tragic stories of other Andaman tribes' encounters with the outside world. And it shows how the web of modernity is drawing ever closer to the island's shores. Adam Goodhart is a historian, travel writer, essayist, and author of the New York Times bestseller *1861: The Civil War Awakening*. Adam Goodhart, welcome to Writer's Voice. Thank you, Francesca. It's great to be here. The last island in the title of your book is North Sentinel Island in the Andaman Archipelago. You write that despite the outsized niche that North Sentinel Island fills in millions of people's imaginations, this is the first full-length book on it that's ever been published. First, why do you say that there is an outsized niche in the imagination of millions of people? And then tell us why did you decide to write a book about it? 
So some of your listeners may remember this and some uh, might not, but in November 2018, a young American traveler swam onto a remote beach in the Indian Ocean and was promptly killed by naked islanders wielding bows and arrows. Um, And this story made international news. This young man whose name was John Chow was an evangelical Christian and a graduate of Oral Roberts University, and he had come to convert the native people to Christianity. He called North Sentinel Island Satan's last stronghold. And his his effort to convert the natives to evangelical Christianity um, obviously did did not succeed, but he did succeed in in gaining another and distinctly 21st century kind of of immortality because this story went viral worldwide and it was quickly taken up by readers and viewers around the world who were kind of amazed at the fact that there was still this this island where the people are naked hunter-gatherers living in near-total isolation, and their language and culture are still uh, almost completely unknown to anthropologists, and they defend their island with arrows against any invaders. Now, as I said, you know, hundreds of millions of people around the world were sort of amazed at this story, but I was not one of the people who was shocked and amazed because I had actually been fascinated with North Sentinel Island myself for about two decades at that point. I had first learned about the island back in the 1990s and had actually traveled there myself and written about it. Unlike the young American who was killed, John Chow, I didn't try to set foot on the on the island. I just circled it in a small boat and had some adventures that did not include um, being shot at. But uh, clearly, this was something that had just captured um, the imagination of many, many people. And um, there seemed to be a hunger for more knowledge of of what this place was and how it had managed to survive in its isolation for so long. And how did it manage to survive in its isolation for so long? So this is a place that's in the Andaman Islands. So basically to situate us, it's kind of the upper right-hand corner of the Indian Ocean in the Bay of Bengal. So the Andamans are an archipelago that belongs to the Republic of India. Um, There are hundreds of large and small islands, and the archipelago was colonized by the British back in the 19th century, who created a penal colony on one of the larger islands. But many of the smaller islands in this archipelago remained more or less pristine. And through my, my research, and I'm a travel writer as well as a historian, through my research, I've tried to track down every trace that I could find of people who have tried to land on North Sentinel Island over the centuries and make contact um, with the inhabitants. And I found that there were actually quite a few sort of glancing contacts over the years, but including some that were fairly unpleasant, if not catastrophic, to say the least, for the islanders, and are probably what resulted in them either going and hiding in the jungle whenever people approach, or as a last resort, coming out and physically repelling any intrusion. So tell us more about the islanders. Where do they come from? What are their origins? So these people are really a a great mystery, historically, genetically, culturally, in many, many ways. The Andaman Islands in general were home to many tribes for thousands of years, people who look very different from other inhabitants of South and Southeast Asia. They really look almost more like African pygmies than they do like typical Asians. They're very small, they're very dark-skinned, 
And genetically, they have been very little studied. Of course, the sentinelese themselves have been not studied at all. And only a few small studies have been done on members of, of other Andamanese tribes. But from what's known, they're believed to have existed basically separate from the rest of humanity for as much as 70,000 years and to represent um, possibly sort of an earlier population that migrated out of Africa before the, the settlement of most of the rest of, of Asia. So they're fascinating genetically and they're fascinating culturally as well. They really are still living. These Sentinelese are still living um, in existence as, as pure hunter-gatherers. They don't, um, we believe, have any written language. They don't appear to have organized forms of religious worship or um, political structures from, from what we can tell. They're really living very, very differently from almost all the rest of the 8 billion people on the planet, but perhaps more similarly to what most human beings lived like millennia ago. They have a very different concept of time. Tell tell us about that. Yeah. So, you know, one of the things that, that was a challenge in writing a book about a place that I wasn't able to set foot on and whose inhabitants I wasn't able to interview was trying as best I could to understand what the worldview and the mindset of the native Andamanese is. And there have been some anthropological studies done on on some of the tribes on other nearby islands that are in touch to varying degrees um, with the outside world. And the uh, anthropologists have been able to discover that they have a very, very complicated and rich culture, a very sophisticated sense of their own history, and a sense that history is something that sort of happens in cycles and something that comes to them. The wind is their metaphor for history, the wind coming, blowing off the island bringing history to them. And of course, this is something very appropriate for island-dwelling people um, whose brushes with the outside world um, have all been through these, perhaps it, it seems to them, kind of random encounters with mysterious outsiders. So in a way, you know, we're thinking of history as notable events, which is, I think, has a corollary to our own understanding of history. But for them, it's not seen in terms of a past versus a, and the future, but in terms of a direction. Exactly, exactly. And the other thing that was very interesting to me, I, I remember reading, I don't know if you, do you know about the anthropologist Marshall Sullins? Yes, I do. Of course. Yeah, of course. I remember reading his work many, many years ago uh, and being really impressed by the alternate understanding of power relationships in society for probably the vast majority of human uh, society before the beginning of classes, <laughs> you know, before the beginning of agriculture, let's say. And the North Sentinelese, the, the Andamanese, strike me as being right within that construct of, uh, you know, decisions are made consensually. Uh, talk a little bit more about that. No, I should, I should say that, you know, anything that, that we say about the Sentinelese themselves is 
based on these glancing contacts over the years and based on what anthropologists have been able to observe. Basically, the the farthest they've really gotten is going into the surf in small boats and handing coconuts and bananas to the native people who accepted them willingly, but, but warily, I would say, and made it clear that they didn't want the anthropologists to intrude any further. Um, in past centuries, there were a couple of occasions when outsiders actually managed to go in and, and explore the island and sort of march around um, with large groups of, of armed um, accompanists and the uh, armed companions, and the natives went and hid in the jungle. So um, our contacts are, are somewhat fleeting. But based on what's been seen of the other tribes in the Andaman Islands, um, there are no hierarchies. Um, no political hierarchies within these tribes at all. All of the decisions are made consensually. Um, there's no organized religious worship. Um, there's really no um, private property. It, it it sounds very nice, to be honest. Yeah, exactly. And you say there's particular deference paid to elders, both men and women. And what struck yeah. me also is that there doesn't seem to be much of a difference. Of course, they do go around naked, but they have some adornment. And there doesn't seem to be a whole lot of gendered difference in the way they dress. No, there's there's really not. And um, it does seem like there are differently gendered roles in the society, except um, that in terms of the respect and the power um, that's accorded to members of these small tribal groups that seems to be accorded regardless of the gender. Um, and when the British came in in the 19th century and began having contact with the Andamanese people, they immediately went around looking for tribal chiefs and they would sort of decide that the person who appeared to them for whatever reason to most closely resemble their stereotype of what a chief was, they would sort of announced that this person was a chief, but it was really more to do with the fact that the British felt that they needed somebody with whom they could sort of make treaties or look to as a trusted leader of the local community. It had much more to do with that than with any authentic hierarchy within those those tribes. So, Adam Goodhart, in this book, The Last Island, you say it's a story of, of the British Empire. A story, not the story, but it's a story of the British Empire. And, and there's a very interesting figure in the book that you write about who took actually many of the stunning photos in the book, Maurice Portman. I wonder if you could talk about how is this a story of the British Empire? And, and especially in the context of this one man who's quite striking. But first give us the general view and then tell us about him. Yeah, so what I discovered is that North Sentinel Island has usually been portrayed as somewhere that just sort of managed miraculously to slip through the net of history and remain in some distant millennium. But of course, that's not the case. In fact, it's kind of been at the center of a swirling maelstrom of history, and especially this imperial history of the 19th century. And I discovered that, in fact, they're in retreat from a terrible and dramatic saga um, that includes the kind of stories that could have been written by Joseph Conrad. It sort of felt like the original heart of darkness in some ways when when I um, read some of these documents that I found in archives in India and in London particularly. So Morris Portman, who became a central figure in my book, at first seemed like an incredibly impressive character. 
So he was a young man from one of the wealthiest aristocratic families in Britain. Um, he was abruptly pulled out of school when he was still about 16 years old and mysteriously sent out to the farthest corner of the British Empire as an imperial functionary. And he never returned to finish school, much less attend university. But um, despite that drawback, he became an incredibly impressive scholar and sort of amateur anthropologist, a linguist, a historian, a photographer who made very, very beautiful images of members of the Andamanese tribes with whom the, the British were in touch. And he published books on their on their languages and on their culture that are still consulted today over 100 years later. So in many ways, he started out being a, a, a figure who was sort of fascinating and, and worthy. But then I began delving deeper into his accounts, both his, his published accounts of his travels through the Andaman Islands, and also even more so his unpublished diaries, which I found not just unpublished, but previously unidentified in a library in London. And I was sort of plunged into this dreamscape of sex, drugs, alcohol, and madness, as it were, where he was really almost established his own personal fiefdom among the Andamanese natives and was sexually exploiting people, was behaving in ways that were very cruel and violent and even genocidal. And the entire time he was sort of obsessively trying to document these people whom he he saw as as quickly becoming extinct as a civilization. He was trying to, to document them and, and preserve the historical record of them without really doing anything at all to preserve them as as human beings. So he became a, a villain, having begun as a as a kind of a hero um, for me. He he eventually morphed into a much darker figure in, in the course of my researching the book. And in a way, I mean, I think emblematic then of the kind of imperialist relationships that the British Empire established. Exactly, and and yet, you know, I also have to say that I think this book um, is kind of about both the best and the worst parts of human nature, um, which in many ways are intertwined. And so, you know, our urge as a species for conquest has so often been intertwined with our drive to explore and know and understand and depict, which I think we can agree isn't entirely bad. And I think perhaps that was the case with Portman, the photographs that he created of the Andamanese, uh, many of which are in my book, are just stunningly beautiful. Um, I, I showed them to uh, recently to Errol Morris, the filmmaker, who was one of my my early readers, and he told me that he thought that these were just literally some of the most beautiful and moving photographs he's ever seen. Um, which, coming from Errol Morris, I think it really says something. So it's it's not just that I think that they're that they're beautiful, um, which I which I do, um, but they have a, a, a deeply empathetic feeling to them, at least on the surface, and so. Now I understand that these images were created by somebody um, who really was not such an empathetic character. Yes, and, and those images, though, those photographs really struck me, not only because they were beautiful, but also, as you yourself note in the book, uh, Adam Goodhart, in The Last Island, you note that when you were looking at one of the photographs, the first thing that registered with you was the man's body. It was naked, perfect, as taut and upright as the bow. This is what a human body is supposed to be. 
uh, you thought. And that's what struck me as well, that this is a kind of view into human beings as we lived for the vast majority of our history in a way. That's right. And there's a, a plangent sense of loss that I experienced in reading your book, and, and I wonder if you did as well, that, you know, in some way we, we've become quite degraded. I mean, if all our technology went away, we would not survive an instant, whereas these folks would. Absolutely. And I have to say that's something that really came out for me particularly poignantly, um, not so much from my historical research, which is a big part of the book, but um, the book is equally um, a work of travel. And so I write about my two um, trips to the Andaman Islands, one in 1998, when I actually went and circumnavigated North Sentinel Island and had my own encounter with the natives. And then one in 2020, when I went back to the archipelago, I did not return to North Sentinel, which um, was highly illegal the first time I went and um, is just as illegal today. And I don't recommend that any of our, our listeners attempt to go there, certainly. But I did get to experience the vast changes that are coming to that part of the world and the ways that the other indigenous tribes of the archipelago are increasingly infringed on um, by the outside world and still are, are valiantly trying to maintain their autonomy and maintain their culture in the face of odds that look more and more challenging. You know, there's a, a kind of controversy in the in the book that runs you met an anthropologist who had worked with the Andamanese, Tien Pandit. This was someone who did establish, not with the North Sentinelese, but others, other remote tribes on, on islands. Um, he established relationships with them, brought in food and supplies. So the controversy is over, should we leave them alone or should they be helped? And I, I wonder if you could talk about the pros and cons of these? Where are we with that? What are your feelings about it? Well, currently, the Indian government um, is really maintaining a minimalist policy. So they have an exclusion zone around the island that's patrolled by the Navy and the Coast Guard, and, and um, they ban anybody from going anywhere near the Sentinelese. And for that matter, they also ban outsiders from um, deliberately seeking any contact with members of the other indigenous groups um, in the islands, which are given their own travel reserve areas in which to live. And I think most people who hear the story of North Sentinel Island and hear um, about the young American John Chow, who went there to attempt to convert them and, and in the process not only lost his own life, but of course also put at risk the lives of the Sentinelese if he had brought any outside diseases to the island with him. I think anyone who hears that story says, well, of course, they should be left in their isolation. They've made their, their foreign policy pretty clear, as it were, and it's an isolationist foreign policy that they're ready to enforce with bows and arrows. And that's more or less the side that I come down on myself. Um, but I also have to say that there are some complications as well. So uh, as as much as we may want to leave them alone in their isolated state, the fact is that we are already are impinging on North Sentinel Island and impinging really on every so-called pristine area inhabited by indigenous groups around the world, places like the Highlands of New Guinea um, or the Amazon Basin. So we as 
the civilization are impinging um, through the vast changes that we're wreaking on the climate and the environment. Um, I saw when I was in the Andamans the trash that's washing up um, on the beaches of other islands in the Andamans that one can only presume the same thing is going on on North Sentinel. Um, we're certainly having an impact on the species that they depend upon as hunter-gatherers to survive, species from um, the surrounding oceans in particular. Um, they see us every day. They see um, jet planes flying overhead multiple times um, a day. They're not terribly far from the major airport um, in the Andaman Islands. So the encroachment is happening um, anyway, and some people actually make a fairly powerful argument saying that we should establish some kind of a lifeline um, with them, at least some kind of means to protect them, perhaps to vaccinate them, so that um, if the inevitable um, incursion happens, perhaps inevitable incursion happens, they won't be completely cut off and unprotected. Right. I mean, sea level rise alone is going to overwhelm those islands. So there really is an elegiac undercurrent in this book. Uh, as you write, the age of discovery, meaning the discovery of new peoples, new lands, is ending. These islanders are among the most isolated people in the world, but those who remain are vanishing. What is lost when they vanish? What is lost to us? I think the elegiac tone of the book comes not just because of the terrible impact on indigenous groups that I, I document that's been wreaked by self-appointed explorers and discoverers across the millennia and, and an impact that's still happening today. It's not something that ended in, in 1492. It's something that's ongoing in various parts of the world. I, uh, but I think the, the the tone comes not just from that, but also a sort of a sadness about the fact that our world has shrunk. While I don't romanticize the act of discovery, I do mourn the fact that until recently we had a planet that felt a whole lot bigger than ourselves, and now it feels a whole lot smaller. And I think that traveling to the Andaman Islands is one of the things that one can do in the world today to be most forcibly struck with that realization. And I, I hope that's something that I bring out in my book. Yes, I think you do. And I think the other thing I think that's so important to us is that, you know, they have persisted through the millennia, and other indigenous peoples have persisted in spite of the incredible depredations of, of modern life against them and colonization and incredible brutality. And I feel uh, almost as if we are possibly too late, but waking up to the incredible richness of worldview that indigenous people still uh, retain and that I think we really need to remind ourselves of and in fact adopt as much as we can and adapt to in our world. What are your thoughts? I agree. I think we have so much to learn from indigenous communities. And I think, unfortunately, many of the people who have come in from the outside wanting to learn about those communities have, have done so with various kinds of bad faith or even brutality and, and violence over the centuries. And I'd like to think that we're doing somewhat better now. And um, there are some extraordinary Indian anthropologists in particular who um, in recent decades have studied 
some of the native cultures of the Andaman Islands and really done tremendous work in recording the richness of of their civilization in a way that I I hope will uh, will survive and but I I fear that uh, we're really very late in the game. Well, your book is just a marvelous, I think, addition to the knowledge, you know, for the public, for the knowledge about this group of people and and also explores, I think, all these kinds of moral and human questions as well. It's a beautifully written book. And I want to thank you, Adam Goodhart, so much for talking with us about it. Francesca, thanks so much for uh, talking with me. Adam Goodhart is a historian, travel writer, essayist, and author of the New York Times bestseller, 1861, The Civil War Awakening. Go to writersvoice.net for a link to an excerpt from his book, The Last Island. Next up, The Wonders of Seeds. Stay tuned after the break. Sonata Number no. 2 in A Minor by Johann Sebastian Bach. Welcome back to Writer's Voice. I'm Francesca Rhiannon. Ever since the evolution of seed-bearing plants some 350 million years ago, most life on this planet has depended, directly or indirectly, on them. But seeds and seed diversity are endangered from multiple threats, ranging from industrialized agriculture to habitat loss. In her book, What We Sow, gardener, podcast host, and author Jennifer Jewell explores the personal, ecological, and cultural significance of seeds, as her subtitle says. She recounts the wonders of seeds, the threats to them, and the worldwide efforts to save them for posterity. Jennifer Jewell is a gardener, garden writer, and gardening educator and advocate. She's also the host of the public radio show and podcast, Cultivating Space. Jennifer Jewell, welcome to Writer's Voice. Ah, thank you so much for having me. You say you've been a student of seed all your life. What do you mean by that? Well, in my third book, which was recently published, What We Sow, uh, on the personal, ecological, and cultural significance of seeds. I trace the importance of seed and the kind of state of seed in our world, if you were will, through a garden gardener's view lens. And, and what becomes apparent to me as I'm researching this book three years ago uh, and writing it is that I have always loved seed. I have been compelled by seed since I was a tiny child. And I think this is true for all of us. If we think back on it, you think of, you know, throwing maple seed and their wings up in the air to helicopter down or blowing a dandelion seed head off into the world or playing with acorns in their caps. Um, whatever the seeds of your place might have been as children, I think we are, we are naturally drawn to them as friends as playmates and playthings. 
And then throughout my life as a gardener, seed has been, of course, very central to what I love and how I do it. So when I came to researching this book, I realized that I had been learning from seed and about seed throughout my life as a human, but specifically as a gardener. Right. I am a gardener, too. And like you, I find seeds pretty miraculous. Yeah. What are some of the most miraculous facts about seeds for you that you'd like to share with our audience? Well, I think the first thing is just the fact that they exist, right? That that you can hold an acorn in your hand, and that acorn is, in fact, just one face of what will or could become a 250-year-old oak tree that is 40 feet wide and 40 feet high and feeds generations of birds and mammals and insects and mycorrhiza, uh, to say nothing of sheltering and cradling the universe that exists inside of an oak tree in a time span much larger than ours. You can hold that in your hand. like That is amazing to me. The second thing is that when you dig into studying the history of seed and uh, the the evolution of the seed-bearing plants on our planet, their rise and their uh, domination, if you will, of the planet has been a one of these remarkable success stories in adaptation and co-evolution with climate and geology and hydrology and humans and and other plants. So, you know, about 365 million years or so ago, the earliest iterations of the seed-bearing plants as we now know them began to co-evolve on the planet. Uh, and they now are consist of the gymnosperms. These are the older of the group of seed-bearing plants, and, and they're represented by like our conifers, our cone-bearing plants. And sometime later, the angiosperms, the flowering seed-bearing plants came along. There are now something like 300,000 species of flowering seed-bearing plants that represent 80% of all plant life on our planet. So I don't care who you are or where you are, you look out of your window and you are enjoying the benefits of the success of the angiosperms, those seed-bearing plants. So when you put that in context, right, like we as humans rely on the lives of these seeds in almost every way you can think of. They are who photosynthesize and create oxygen. They filter our water. They stabilize our soil. They are our rice, our wheat, our soy, our corn. They are our flowers. They are the food of all of the other food that we might take advantage of. And so they are integral to what life means to us and how much they must know after co-evolving and adapting for 365 million years, it seems to me like we have a lot more that we could learn from them if we choose to pay attention. Mm. And that's so much of the beauty of this book, What We Sow, because you go into all the different kinds of aspects of seeds, but you also make it very personal, very much about your own life. And one of the things that you talk about is, you know, we live in the Anthropocene now, 
in where you live in the West, this is manifested by you know terrible mega fires. This is a concern of yours. You have been to places that have been uh, burned by wildfire. And you've also seen recovery after fire in terms of plant life. So talk about the resilience of seeds. Right. You know, and I think that is what is encoded in their evolution and adaptation is all of these lessons of how to survive despite, but also with, in collaboration with ice, fire, flood, drought, whatever it may be, these seeds and these plants have figured out how to thrive in the conditions they find themselves in. Uh, those are who come down to us over all these millions of years. And so just two days ago here in Butte County, Northern California, we honored the fifth year anniversary of the fire in Paradise, California, a fire that burned my partner's property, the property that I I speak about in the book and the canyon in which he makes his life and I make most of my life these last five years. And that fire went right through our canyon and the lessons and the grief, but also the amazement, as you say, at what is cleansed and cleared and rejuvenated by the fire reminds you that very few things on this earth are all bad or all good. And they are often not on our timeline. They are on a bigger timeline of their own. And so, again, these are some of the lessons I think we can learn from and learn to be more patient, more persistent, and more resilient and better stewards of our plant communities, our places, but also our human communities without question. Now, another miraculous uh, quality of seeds is dormancy. And Jennifer Jewell, in What We Sow, you mention six trees that were sprouted from a 2,000-year-old date palm. 2,000 years. Right. Crazy. This was one of the, I think, I don't know, there were a lot of very good humans I, I had the privilege to interview and a lot of great stories that really help to give you hope and optimism and reason to take your own agency on growing the world the way you want it to be seen against perhaps all odds. But this story, like one of the recurring uh, amazements of the, the seed scientists specifically that I spoke with for this book. And, you know, this includes the head of the Millennium Seed Bank at Kew in the United Kingdom, the, the leaders of the California Botanic Garden and their uh, really legendary seed bank uh, trying to preserve all of the biodiversity of uh, the California floristic province to the USDA's seed bank in Fort Collins and their, uh, you know, work to consolidate and conserve and preserve and share forward all of the floral diversity of food crops, but also utility crops of uh, North America. They are all astounded by the miracle, but still some of the mysteries that seed hold in 
how they hold dormancy and what it takes for them to break dormancy and germinate. Like these are the secret keys to the success stories of these seed bearing plants across the planet, these uh, millions of years. And so that is an interesting question. And I think we're all aware of it, right? Like when we see an acorn germinating and sending out a little radical down into the soil because a blue jay planted it in a raised bed or wherever they might've planted it. And or, you know, how quickly or not quickly our, our vegetable or flower seeds germinate into that really amazing little green cotyledon coming up out of this, out of the soil where there appeared to be nothing there before. And there are many seeds who have shared their secrets of dormancy and germination with scientists and gardeners across time and space. But there are others who are holding these secrets a lot more closely. And those thousand year old, 2000 year old date palm seeds that were discovered in a tomb and then were successfully germinated uh, by that French team was one of these stories of how long can a seed stay dormant? this long, this long, or this long. And 2000 years was was a record for verified age of that seed and successful, not just germination, but full development into another seed bearing plant for whom uh, or with whom you could cross other date palms. And this opened up like an amazing knowledge and opportunity for these seed scientists on some of the possibilities of reinvigorating current genetic lines in our plant lives with older genetics that we thought we had lost. So it's this really interesting uh, kind of section of the seed world on uh, questions and some beginning answers to uh, how do we deal with biodiversity loss. And this might be one way. You know, Jennifer, Jewel, I couldn't help but notice that when you said the seeds who instead of the seeds that, and I wondered, is that a conscious choice? And if so, tell us about that. It is very much a conscious choice. And I hope it is now fully ingrained in me because one of the things uh, that has grown for me in my relationship with plants and my garden and my my place is being able to learn from some of the voices that I have interviewed, I have uh, exchanged correspondence with, I have studied what they write, what they do, and the really generative and formidable uh, rise in accessibility, but also visibility of land-based peoples across the world who really see their ancient and generational relationship with these plants as being one of kinship, of family, of relations. That worldview is very much one I think uh, we could all benefit from. And I take as one of my first and greatest lessons in the work that I do. And so referring to those 
lives around me uh, who make my life possible as beings, as living entities, I think is an important change in language that shifts how you see things and therefore the decisions you make about how you live your life. And I'm, I'm deeply grateful to every one of the people from the poet Ross Gay to the indigenous seed keeper Rowan White to Leah Penniman of Soul Fire Farm. Like some of the people I have had the great privilege of interviewing have really taught me this. And I have a lot more to learn, no doubt. Well, those are wonderful mentions. And in fact, I'd like to get back in a little bit to what is being done around the world to protect seeds. But first, I'd like us to spend a little bit of time talking about the threats to seeds. I was just uh, reading the other day that the loss of animal species has great implications for losing our seed species as well. So tell us some of the ways that seeds are under threat. And, and let's just start there with you know, how seeds are dependent on wildlife and biodiversity. It's one of those questions and answers that is actually attached to almost everything we can think of in life because seeds are environment, seeds are food, seeds are habitat, seeds are economy, and seeds are home to most of us in a, the biggest way of thinking about that. And so when we consider the ideas of a loss of diversity of food crops, you know, that what would have been hundreds and hundreds of species of corn native to the Northern Hemisphere and North America as a continent, South America, Central America, now being dwindled down to, you know, I don't know, five or less primary commodity corn species being propagated and some of those patented as genetically modified, that right there is a threat to seed. That consolidation and commodification of seed and this contraction of what is available to us. Climate change is absolutely a threat to seed and its diversity and its integrity as habitat is lost and dispersal space, but also mechanisms in the form of animals and mammals and, um, you know, insects and mammals and, and just pure ground that this seed could find and successfully grow to maturity on. That is absolutely a threat. And so you have this nexus of, of threats that all come together in this exact time. And I would say that final threat is us as humans seeing seed as a commodity to be engineered and exploited uh, for profit at our will and us diminishing and contracting its capacity to grow environments, to sustain wildlife and to sustain us as humans. So these threats come together and, and some of their greatest expressions, I think, can be um, or their their consequences can be seen in the fact that 60% of the seed industry, which is a billions and billions of dollars industry in the world, 60% of that is controlled by four large international pharmaceutical and petrochemical companies. Now really think about that, right? Like our seed, which represents food, 
and environmental integrity are controlled by pharmaceutical petrochemical companies. That's a very disturbing statistic. Uh, when you think about our best interests, and when I say our, I mean the greater our as humans and and other living planet mates. The other statistic, there, there are two more I want to share, is the the rate at which we are using toxic chemicals, not just on our seed, but in our environment generally, has led to the Environmental Protection Agency stating that all non-organic corn grown in the U.S. is now treated with chemicals and is in all likelihood, genetically modified. When you think of the millions of acres across the U.S. that is planted in this corn, think about the ramifications to soil, to water, to environmental health and well-being for humans and animals as a result of that. To say nothing of the degradation of these corn genetics contaminating all other corn genetics, and, and this corn in its great diversity of other kinds of corn has been stewarded and preserved by the indigenous peoples of this continent for thousands of years. And in two or three generations, we stand the chance of contaminating it all. That is terrifying. That is, that is tragic and egregious and terrifying to me. And say why Exactly. Why that contamination is so dangerous? I mean, one thing is, of course, loss of, of diversity. Well, it's, it's, yeah, it's, it's, it's alarming in so many ways. But the, the first way is the one you just said, which is no small thing, is that when we lose those genetics, some of them are small enough now because we have isolated them through loss of habitat and loss of propagation they they stand the chance to be lost forever. They're not going to come back like that random date palm that was found in a tomb. That we stand the chance of losing them forever. When we lose them, and this is this is cited and and you referred to it earlier, but this is cited by the the ethnobotanist and and seed scientist Gary Nabhan who works out of the Southwest is that when you put one plant on the endangered species list, you can't think of it in isolation. You also put on the endangered species list all of the insects who dispersed that seed, who relied on that seed, who pollinated that plant, or the humans for whom that was culturally significant. You endanger their cultural integrity. And so it is this this unfortunate and, and horrifying web of destruction that we we are reaping. And, you know, it sounds like a conspiracy theory, but when you think about one plant that is very significant to you, removing it from the planet has greater consequences uh, than we can see in a single glance. And I think that's important for us to remember. And in fact, you say control the food, control the people. So there's that as well. But one of the issues also with these GMO seeds and GMO crops is that with that drift of contamination, it means that other plants are then not able to withstand 
the kind of, you know, challenges to plants. In other words, uh, you basically have to have, have to be GMO in order to withstand the weeds, let's say. Right. Or to withstand the drift. So, I mean, I think I can give a specific example of the use of a chemical called dicamba. And dicamba is, you know, sprayed onto some of these GMO plants who are inoculated in the seed stage with the ability to withstand that dicamba so that that dicamba is sprayed over acres and acres of corn, let's say, and it kills the weeds around the corn, but it doesn't kill the corn. But because this is a wind-pollinated plant, the chemicals that were put into the seed that grows that corn, they now persist. That chemical persists in the pollen of that corn. So that chemical, which is a wind-pollinated plant, can travel miles and affect the pollen of non-insecticide or biocide-treated corn, but also the plants nearby who are, or farmers nearby who are trying to not rely on toxic chemicals, as you say, they become the victims of that dicamba drifting in that same air. So it's like a double whammy, triple whammy, if you will, that is very hard to withstand in our country, economically and culturally. But you do say that there there was, is, and always will be cultural seed keepers outside the industrialized commercial one. So let's now turn to some of those, the the heroes really of this book, What We Sow, Jennifer Jewell. And let's start with, with seed banks and how important that they are. They are so important as a full partner in what it means to preserve and protect biodiversity. So seed banks in their largest, most organizational form began in the late 1800s in actually what was the Russian Empire. And the first one was started with the very clear intent that the empire needed to preserve its agricultural seed so that it would always have the ability to feed its people and grow its empire. So they were protecting their food at the same time, and you mentioned this earlier, that empires have always deployed the strategy of destroying the food of other people so that they could control those people. It was certainly uh, the case when, uh, you know, the United States as a settler government tr- began their domination of North America. They destroyed the food and the food ways of the indigenous peoples as a way to control them and take control of the land. We see it in the, the current war between Russia and Ukraine in the Russians targeting the grain that's coming out of Ukraine to the rest of the world. So seed banks started in the late 1800s have grown into this incredible 1,700 large seed banks around the world, many, many smaller seed banks as well. And what they do is they create a space for a backup copy in seed form of the diversity of plants and food plants on the ground across whatever region the seed bank might represent or group of plants this seed bank might represent. So in the United States, our largest seed bank is headquartered in Fort Collins, Colorado. It has a long name. Uh, Let's just call it the USDA Seed Bank in Fort Collins. And 
their job is to have as many representative seed for all of the food crops and utility crops. And to some extent, they are trying to expand to the native plant biodiversity across the U.S. They are preserving what is first preserved on the ground in the places. So when you preserve a forest, you are preserving that as a living seed bank, as it were. That is called in-situ conservation, in-place. A seed bank is ex-situ conservation. It collects all that seed and then it stores it in a safe place, just like a bank. And the point of that is the importance of both. You don't want one without the other. But the the backup copy in the seed bank means that if you have a fire like we had in paradise or you have a hurricane or an earthquake or a war, this backup copy gives you the opportunity to regenerate that landscape, feed those people and restore the 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 livelihood of the place. And we see this over and over again across the the, the planet. And that resulted that understanding that this can happen anywhere and can endanger even the largest places and the largest seed banks, that resulted in a collaboration of these seed banks coming together and in 2008 opening the largest, most comprehensive seed bank on the planet, which is the seed vault at Svalbard, uh, an archipelago just about 1,500 miles north of the Arctic Circle. And this seed bank is essentially a backup copy of all of the backup copies. Uh, it, it's a beautiful and elegant idea and uh, a, a wonderful experiment, but also illustration of what we can do when we collaborate well. Now, let's talk about Seed Savers Exchange and also seed libraries. Uh, you mentioned the Hudson Valley Seed Company. My local library in Amagansett, New York, gives me free seeds every year from the Hudson Valley Seed Seed Company. That's great. That's great. Yes. Some of our greatest expressions of what it means to be human and share and protect and support the commons is seen in this idea of a seed library. The founder of Hudson Valley Seed Company, Kay Green, and his partner, Doug Muller, actually developed that seed company out of their experience of Kay Green founding the very first seed library in Gardner, New York. That idea of having free seed shared and curated by a community in place in their public library is one of these just elegantly perfect ideas of people swapping seeds in a place that most places have, a public library, and allowing access and visibility of this seed currency, if you will, for all to share openly with one another. And the idea, of course, is that you take a little seed and then you grow it at home, whether it's your zucchini or your zinnias, and then you return that seed. If your crop did well, you save some of that seed and you return it to the library. In general, there are volunteers, mostly gardeners, who come together to clean, tidy, curate, uh, and help direct that seed library. Um, in many of the seed libraries, which I think is, a again, a just a beautiful and imaginative reuse, 
the old card catalogs are now what's used to uh, house the seed packets that people share, take, and return. And having started from one in the early 2000s, late 1990s, that one seed library has now grown into a network uh, that has proliferated beautifully across the U.S. And now Hudson Valley Seed, which is run by Kay and Doug and a team, really embodies this idea of saving seed, exchanging seed, building capacity in cultures and places with the growing and sharing of seed, uh, seed knowledge and seed diversity. Oh, that's beautiful. And so just really very finally, last night I was uh, saving some lettuce seeds myself, squeezing them out of their feathery dried flowers. That's the first time I've done that, and I was inspired by your book, Jennifer Jewell, to do that. What is the best way I can protect the potency of my little lettuce seeds for next season? The first thing is to let them dry, fully, fully dry before you close them up in a container. Then once you have feel confident that they are very dry, seal them into something, uh, whether it's a little glass jar or it's a, a sealed paper envelope, because in order to keep that seed in dormancy until you are ready to plant it out again because the conditions are right next spring, you want to protect that seed from all the things that might encourage it to germinate early. So you want to protect it from light, from warmth, and from humidity. And so keeping dry, cool, and dark, those are your friends. And this is such a great book to read, What We Sow on the Personal, Ecological, and Cultural Significance of Seeds. Jennifer Jewell, it's been a privilege to talk with you about it. Oh, thank you so very much. It is always fun to talk with anybody else who loves seed as much as I do. Jennifer Jewell, go to writersvoice.net for a link to her podcast, Cultivating Space. And next week on Writer's Voice, we talk with blogger, journalist, and science fiction writer Cory Doctorow about his new book, The Lost Cause. Don't miss it. That's it this week for Writer's Voice. Go to writersvoice.net to listen to or download past shows, plus find out more about our guests or read book excerpts. And you can read interview transcripts at the Writer's Voice Substack. I'm your host, Francesca Rhiannon. 